Hi there, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. My name is Moz Afzal and I'm the Chief Investment Officer of VFG. This is an edited version of our internal podcast, more than just a typical market analysis podcast. In each episode, we go beyond the benchmark, delving into current topics affecting markets, economies and investor psychology. Each episode, I'll be discussing global trends with guests and experts from within EFG and further afield. If you'd like to get in touch, please email me on beyond at fgam.com. Repeat that, beyond at fgam.com. This week, we have Dan Clifton of Strategist Partners. Dan is a preeminent expert on US uh, politics and global politics and obviously, at the moment and uh, over the next two or three months, we're going to be inundated with issues around the US election. Is it Trump? Is it Biden? What are the sort of the, the key policy initiatives that are going to make the difference? And we will also talk and think about the impact of China, uh, global trade, uh, Kamala Harris coming into the uh, election fray, what does that mean for the US election and beyond? So uh, without further ado, let's talk to Dan. So next up, we have Dan Clifton, who is the guru on uh, US politics, and uh, he's from Strategis. Uh, Dan has been uh, on Beyond the Benchmark a couple of times, but uh, we're going to do a bit of a deep dive here. So Dan, uh, welcome to Beyond the Benchmark. Thank you for having me. It's great to be with you today. Yeah. So um, the standard question that I've been asking um, people when they when they come on is mm-hmm. a little bit about the career, the background, and, and why they do what they do. So uh, the first yeah. question to you, you know, how did you start your career in politics, and and what uh, drove you there? That's a great question. Um, you know, like everything in life, uh, some of it is by accident. Some of it is on purpose. You know, my, my father was a, a public servant. He served in the U.S. Navy. He served uh, as a police officer. Uh, I lived in a house that uh, saw the benefits of having a, a stable and beneficial government. Uh, I think some of that translated into what I do, not as direct as, say, my older brother, who followed my father's footsteps and is a federal law enforcement official. Um, but, you know, listen, when I was in high school, I was senior class president. I don't think I've ever told anybody that in about 20 <laughs> years. Uh, and, you know, kind of always had this view to service. And and that's the on-purpose side. On the accident side, uh, when I was in college, I was working uh, to finance uh, housing, uh, joint affordable and market rate housing, uh, which was a state agency. And being in a state capital, working in sort of this kind of quasi-government, kind of melded that together. One thing led to another. And before you know it, uh, I'm volunteering on political campaigns as a college student. Uh, and the bug bit me and it bit me good, Moss. And, uh, you know, I've, I've, I've loved it every day since. And that was you know, 25 years ago when that happened and uh and so this is this has been a real a real joy and and uh, to be honest with you what i do today melding it with financial markets politics and financial markets i do it for free if possible just don't tell my uh my <laughs> colleagues that uh but uh politics has been a, a very refreshing 
and uh, satisfying industry to work in despite the issues that we see about in the news. Mm. So what, uh, what particular aspects um, kind of keep you motivated? What, you know, what's, yeah. the, what's the draw? Yeah, so there's a couple of things there. One is it's constantly evolving. And so if you think about what I was doing 25 years ago, I was uh, doing local campaigns, governor's races, uh, working on the ground, making phone calls, uh, talking to county officials and working on their uh, on their elections. Uh, and that eventually changed over time as I started to uh, work in the governor's office, uh, my, my interest began to change. So I went from being the political guy to the policy guy. When I was there, I learned a valuable lesson, and that is that you, you need some sort of competitive advantage uh, or some reason why you're valuable. And uh, think about this in 1997, 1998, building out data in the governor's office. Well, the governor's going to this town but she doesn't know how much money we just put into the education system or how much tax relief that we just delivered. And I began to build these data systems within the governor's office. And as you know, data then starts to become into analysis. And then that analysis started to merge the economic analysis with the political analysis and policy analysis. And eventually that led to other endeavors, which ultimately became financial markets, 13 years ago when I joined Strategus. So it's constantly evolving. But as you know, the politics are also always changing. And I would argue that our current political environment in the U.S. and around the globe uh, is very different today than it was 20 years ago. Uh, and that makes it interesting. It makes it harder to forecast, which we could talk about why that is the case. Um, but clearly, if it was the same thing every day, it, wouldn't, it, it would probably lose some of its luster. And it's constantly evolving, and I think that's what keeps it fresh. So, one of the themes um, that we've seen certainly over the last uh, decade has been, you know, data analytics and data analysis, yeah. and and you know, um, and you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that be now, you know, spent obviously in this election, but certainly over the last few years, yeah. building up data and you know, going into to to you know to individuals homes in terms of their facebook accounts and analysis and everything else and that's obviously taken a lot of scrutiny recently what's your what's your take on that so uh i i'm a data i, I i'm a data nerd so i i love as much data as possible and i understand why companies are using the data in the way they are they're able to find their customers better they're able to target on political campaigns you know i'll just give you this one example when I was in college, I was working on GIS, which is called Geographic Information Systems. How do we get emergency personnel to people's houses better through mapping? Now, all this sounds totally normal to our lives. We all have a map on our phone. But this stuff did not exist 22 years ago, 23 years ago. And what we were trying to do was uh, figure out how to integrate mapping into uh, public services. And then I would leave, I would leave a school and go on a campaign and have physical maps for the people going out and walking and knocking on doors. And what I started to do was integrate digital mapping and being able to map household interests. Do they order gun magazines? Do they, um, you know, uh, uh, shop at a certain store? We know that consumers' political preferences are very different if they shop at a Whole Foods 
uh, versus eating at a Cracker Barrel. I mean, really interesting stuff that you can begin to pick up when you can see it visually on the maps itself. And so I seen the value of it. It allowed us to do political targeting much better, be able to get our voters to the polls and, and know exactly what we needed to do in the lead up to the election. And the tech companies have taken that to a whole nother level through the social media advertising. And, and let's face it, I mean, those social media companies are really advertising uh, companies. And there is a great degree of scrutiny now because they probably have too much data. And, uh, and I think the governments are worried that when they don't control the data and, and companies do, there could be some real risks there to privacy. And so you, you've very prominently seen it in the EU. The US is now catching up. And look, there's really no difference on this issue between President Trump and most of the Democrats. And in fact, despite how polarized we are as a society, uh, you actually see that uh, uh, there are there are a very similar interests between the far right and far left in the U.S. on on tech uh, data issues and on China issues. And I think those are interesting trends that investors need to be focused on. Mm. So um, one of the things that's always interested me is how, if you like, the political establishment see people like yourself. You know, um, are you kind of the outsider? Is there kind of a skepticism or do they see you as an insider? Um, uh, You know, and and how long does it take to kind of build a network of, uh, you know, relationships that can, you know, help you uh, map out uh, the landscape? Uh, that's a great question. Let me say that those relationships uh, that I've been building are over 25 years, and um, and some of them are still with me today. And uh, I think relationship building is the single most important part of this job, uh, and it's also the most difficult. As you know, in a pre-COVID world, I love to travel. I love to sit in a room with my clients, particularly global clients outside the U.S., and try and have an understanding of how they feel about world affairs, the economy, uh, and uh, and financial markets. And I'm able to absorb a lot from that collective wisdom of our clients. In that respect, it actually makes me a valued advisor to policymakers in Washington because I can provide them a level of information that they may not know. Or um, I'll give you one example. Uh, During the uh, COVID shutdown, uh, I think there was a view amongst policymakers that this could lead to some temporary unemployment and that maybe a fiscal stimulus of 1% of GDP uh, is what was needed. And, you know, I kind of came in in the beginning of March and said, hey, guys, we're going to need at least a trillion dollars here. And if the state starts shutting down, then we're going to need probably $2 trillion. Uh, I was viewed as sort of a, a, a bit of an outlier. It, it might be the best way to explain it, uh, having that view. Uh, but ultimately, that's where Congress got to three weeks later. And to watch Congress go from $250 billion to $2 trillion, uh, probably would have happened without me being able to say that. But I was able to kind of ring that alarm. And, and some people value that level of insight. You know, Moss, I used to be a lobbyist. And we could talk about lobbying, you know, down the road. And what I've learned is that lobbyist, a good lobbyist, is the most honest person that you'll ever meet. Now, that's very contrary to what you see in public media about, you know, lobbyists being greedy. But a, a, a lobbyist 
greatest currency is their ability to convey accurate information to the people that they are lobbying. They want to outline where those uh, roadmaps uh, or landmines are in the policy process. They want to be able to give accurate information. And if they're able to do that, they build the trust of the people that they're speaking to, and it makes them more effective. Although I no longer lobby and have no stake in whatever positions happen on a policy basis, I still stand by that. And I'm trying to give unvarnished, unbiased uh, information to uh, policymakers. I give them far more than they give me because of regulatory requirements, where if I was to get a piece of information from them, uh, that I, I would not be able to use it, nor do I want to know that type of information. And so it's more of a one-way street and just trying to understand uh, how financial markets see policy, how different policy changes could impact the economy and financial markets. And, uh, and for those who understand that, it's been a rewarding relationship. Others will look at us in a populist environment and say, well, you're just a Wall Street fat cat, and you're probably just saying this because your clients have some sort of position in the security. You're always going to get that level of skepticism. So I wouldn't say that that first view of being a, an advisor is uh, one that's universally accepted, but it's mostly where the conversations are, are headed. And I think that's a good, good conversation to have. So uh, along those lines, um, one of the things that uh, certainly at EFG um, we value your, your input is being able to take the political landscape and you know, put it into terminology and outcomes that uh, financial analysts like. Um, uh, and you, you've been very successful at doing that. You know, lobbying is just one of those things. Um, but uh, you know, what sort of skills do you think do you have that others don't have in uh, you know piecing that together? Yeah. So you know, this is a, the, uh, the 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 financial political intelligence community is relatively small in Washington. There may be fifteen or twenty firms that do this. Most of them are are rather small boutique shops. And my competitors work very hard uh, to be able to come up every day, write notes, remain fresh is not an easy thing to do. But what I've tried to do, no matter what I'm thinking through in my career, is not be better so much than my competitors, but be different and have some sort of value add that our clients can use. And, and what I've learned as both the consumer of their information before I joined the industry and by talking to clients is that you and I can sit here and talk about the uh, presidential campaign uh, for the next hour. And if you walk away from that conversation and say, okay, well, that was interesting. And it makes for a great conversation at a cocktail party this weekend, but there was no investment takeaway on it. Then there's no difference between what I'm telling you and what you can get on Twitter or by watching the nightly news. And what we really want to understand is what is the investment implication of all of this uh, discussion about policy and really take that one step further and break out the noise and really get to what's important for investors. And, uh, and there's various ways that you can do that. Um, but what we started to do was adopt a data-driven approach to it. As I talked about before, you know, being in the governor's office 20, 25 years ago and realizing that the governor did not have the right data in front of her. 
I built that system for our governor to make more informed decisions. Uh, I did the same thing here with trying to create a data approach to investment outcomes from Washington policy by really trying to understand what the earnings impact will be to those companies from specific policy changes. And I think that's differentiated us where I could take any type of policy or political event like the election or an infrastructure bill or tax reform and be able to develop a basket of stocks for our clients and say, here are the investment implications. Here's who's positively impacted, here's who's negatively impacted. And of course, I couldn't do this all alone. I have an incredible team at Strategus uh, and my colleague, Courtney Rosenberger, uh, really is trained to build these portfolios based on these investment implications and uh, is actually getting even better at it than I am. So we're a good team. My colleague, Jeanette, really develops the policy background around all of these issues. And that allows us to then create the framework. And my colleague, Chris McGrath, builds out all of our data sets. So it's a team effort. Uh, and it's one I think that we've uh, took years to build and we get better at it every day. I think that's added some value for our clients. No, absolutely. And so, so we are beneficiaries of that. Um, so let's talk about, um, you know, the US election is coming. I think it's probably you know, probably the most important event over the last four or five years in, 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 in politics. So, um, uh, obviously, um, Biden's in ahead in the polls, uh, you know, at the moment, Trump is starting to catch up, you know, you're starting to see, um, um, some of the polls starting to kind of move into his direction. Um, you know, what are the key developments, um, you know, right now, um, and, uh, you know, how do you think they'll shape up as, as we get closer to D-Day? So I, I think that this is an incredible time for being a political analyst because the election is probably the, the, the most important one I've ever seen. I know a lot of people say that over time and you never hear me say that because, you know, every I think it's cliche, but this one is different. Maz, we have four super disrupting events happening at once in the United States. And that we, we've gone back a hundred years and we can't find anything like this. What are those four super disrupting events? Well, first we're having a recession. We know that recessions tend to speed up and push back different types of industries uh, or employment for working Americans. Two, we're having a pandemic think about all the people who have used Zoom in the last five months that didn't even know what it was six months ago, right? So you're seeing an acceleration of technologies and probably the greatest behavioral shift of humans that I've experienced in my lifetime. On top of that, the U.S. is having mass protests, some of which are peaceful protests advocating for positive change. Some of them are violent protests that involve looting businesses and eroding property rights. And fourth is that you have a presidential election. Now we have a presidential election every four years. So we know every four years we're gonna have this super disrupting event. But think about 2009, uh, 2008, the election of President Obama, 2016, the election of Donald Trump, 2000, the election of uh, George W. Bush. 
Those were major changes in U.S. and global policy that arose from those decisions and elections in the United States. And we're going to get another one of those. So by isolation, you would have one of those events, but you then also have those other three super disrupting events happening at the same time. So this has been a very disruptive uh, period for the United States. No president has ever been reelected with a recession two years before their reelection. And no president has ever lost reelection if they avoided a recession two years before their reelection. So Trump is naturally behind. Uh, and this is really a referendum on him. He needs to make it a choice. And the only way that he can do that is he's got to get COVID to slow down, the economy to rebound quite strongly, and then be able to make this a choice between him and Joe Biden by making Joe Biden a less uh, uh, less beneficial in voters' views uh, than himself. Uh, those are a lot of ifs. What's interesting is if you look at the uh, the uh, odds makers, political odds makers, this morning they're putting about a 70% chance of Biden winning. What we do is we build portfolios. We build a Republican portfolio and a Democratic portfolio, and we run those portfolios relative to each other to see how the market is pricing in the election. And right now, this morning, the uh, stock market in the U.S. is giving Biden about a uh, 56% chance of winning, right around where Hillary Clinton was on Election Day in 2016, which is a pretty neat irony that we're at that same place. So the events over the next two months will be very critical. We just had the appointment of Kamala Harris as vice president. I think it speaks wonders to the the, the good parts of America. I know America has been getting trash around the globe uh, and even inside the U.S., but you know, you think about two parents who are immigrants immigrating into the United States, raising two wonderful daughters, and one of them can become a vice presidential nominee is really an amazing feat and not something that is possible in all parts of the globe itself. Uh, we continue to improve our country and our standing, uh, but this is a real reflection of the greatness of America and I think a very important moment for the U.S. This is the first woman of color to be on a national ticket for president or vice president and only the fourth woman in U.S. history to be on the top of the ticket. So an important change. Now, whether it changes the election or not may or may not matter, but she was the safe pick. And I can tell you 12 years ago, there was a lot of whispers about whether uh, voters in America would select an African-American president like Barack Obama. The change in 12 years has been just astonishing to watch, and I think very beneficial. Next week, we're going to have the Democratic convention, and then we're going to follow that with the Republican convention. The Democrats in 2016 got an eight-point bounce. So Biden's winning by about eight in the polls right now. That would put Biden in a 16-point lead if you saw something similar like that and, uh, and, and would argue, you know, people would say, oh, the race is, is expanding here. Uh, but the Republicans will go after that and probably will close it. So it's about to get noisy here, Moss, uh, over the next couple of weeks. But if one of the two candidates has a bad convention or a bad debate, 
uh, it can meaningfully hurt them in this environment. There really is no campaign happening right now because of COVID. Uh, there are no rallies. There are no public events. And so when you do have a public event like a convention or a debate, they're going to have a very outsized impact. Let me give you just this one cool stat. The S&P 500 has predicted every presidential election winner since 1984 and 87 percent of the presidential election winners since 1928. It's a pretty simple formula. If stocks are higher in the three-month period before the election, generally the incumbent party has won. And if stocks are lower in that three-month period, the opposition party has won. We use this to great effect in 2016, where stocks were down two and a half percent, which told us the opposition party had a better chance of winning. That opposition party was Donald Trump and the Republicans. Uh, and, uh, and it's something that we'll be watching for. That clock started on August 3rd. So we're about 10 days into that process. And you can just measure it from the close on August 3rd uh, into uh, the election on November 3rd. And I think that's gonna be an important signal for where the market uh, thinks it's going. It, it transcends party because the financial market's just like certainty. And if a new political party is going to win, you'll see investors take some risk off until they can get more information on what the that new administration will do on taxes, on trade, on health care, on climate change. And uh, and that's why I think it works so well. So there's a, a number of um, uh, thoughts that are going through our mind um, in terms of certainly the four points that, that you made are, are obviously, you know, quite, quite critical and just so unusual. And I, I guess... You know, um, uh, given the the fact they're so unusual, normal predictions may well be a lot, lot more harder. Um, uh, you know, so there is probably you know much, much higher degree of uh, of uh, uncertainty than 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 any time before. Um, so let's let's unpack. So let's unpack a, a few things there. Um, so the first thing, obviously, um, Kamala Harris. She was already. You know, one of the favourites. Uh, you know, going into into this period. Um, um, what about the the wider cabinet? You know, what are the things are going to be the markets are going to be interested in? You know, um, a, a lot of debate around kind of Elizabeth Warren sort of having some sort of some role. I don't know, Treasury Secretary or something like that. You know, which could be quite negative for you know some of the markets. Is that uncertainty potentially reflect itself? Uh, you know, during or, or after the convention? So uh, it's a great question. Uh, and, and let me just let me just kind of dig deeper into something I saw this election cycle that I've never seen before. And that is that when we had the Democratic primary, literally, whether it was going to be Biden or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders would move stocks. I've never seen a primary election move stocks like I did. And when I say stocks, I'm talking about the largest stocks in the US, uh, in the US market. Uh, a direct inverse correlation between the performance of Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in the polls and Google, Facebook, Amazon, you know, the FANG stocks as we like to call them. Because the market viewed them, Warren and Sanders, as much more regulatory in, in regulating them and breaking those companies up. United Health and the managed care companies, again, direct inverse relationship. This really reflects 
the polarization of U.S. politics, where I would argue, I think I, I, I've, I've spoken to uh, EFG about this in the past, is that really there's four political parties in the U.S. There's two uh, in the Democrat and two in the Republican. One is the establishment and one is the populist. And, and both parties have them. And so now uh, when we have primaries, they can move stocks. And I bring this history up to you because even though Kamala Harris was the favorite to be the vice president, even though Elizabeth Warren had a very low probability of being the vice president, you can actually watch the price action in stocks yesterday responding to it being Kamala Harris and not Elizabeth Warren. Uh, managed care stocks up several percent. Uh, so there's always going to be that pricing in. And the next step is exactly what you're asking, which is, will it be uh, Elizabeth Warren for Treasury Secretary? Obviously, that would have significant implications for financial stocks, because what you can do on the regulatory side without an act of Congress on financial regulation is pretty, pretty wide in latitude. And, uh, and she could really start to regulate those, those companies. Uh, let me give you a couple sign points. Elizabeth Warren is the senator from Massachusetts. Massachusetts has a Republican governor. If Joe Biden wins the presidency on November 3rd and selects Elizabeth Warren as Treasury Secretary at some point in the next month or two after that, the Republican governor will be allowed to appoint anybody he wants to that Senate seat, including another Republican. So you would be replacing Democrat Elizabeth Warren with a potential Republican, which would change the math and the number of votes that Biden would have for his agenda in the Senate. And so the way I think about it is, if it's a very narrowly divided Senate after the elections, meaning 50-50, which if you look at the polls right now, the election is 50-50. Uh, in the Senate, then uh, removing Elizabeth Warren to be Treasury Secretary would be a tough would be a tough stretch. Mm-hmm. If uh, if uh, you know you have fifty five Democratic senators, uh, you have a little bit more leeway to appoint her to be Treasury Secretary, and that is something that could actually uh, happen in that respect. What folks are going to be watching, or investors are going to be watching is whether Leo Brainerd, who's currently on the Federal Reserve, is put forward for Treasury Secretary. And why that's interesting is that Jerome Powell, is the current Fed chairman, his term expires at the end of 2021. So there may be a push to put Brainerd in at the Fed and not Treasury. But if you got Brainerd at the Treasury early, I think equity markets would rally on that. It will be a signal of a more traditional left of center rather than a full-out leftward swing by the Biden administration. Right. Okay, so there's a, it's, there's quite hanging on, quite a lot hanging on the uh, the Senate vote. To, so you mentioned it's kind of 50-50 at the moment. Uh, yep. What's your kind of your best guess um, with respect to that at the moment? Yeah, so, you know, I, you know if, if, if Joe Biden wins the presidency, uh, and by the way, if the election was held today, Joe Biden would win with 350 electoral votes. It would be a pretty overwhelming win, and he would take the Senate with him. But what we have watched in the last 10 days, Maz, is this idea here that as uh, 
Trump's numbers have improved, the Senate races have closed. And so even if Trump just closes the race but don't win, he's going to help the senators. And uh, if I, you know, again, I, I look at some of these races. Uh, Montana is a good example. Uh, the Republican is losing in Montana. But Trump's going to win Montana by more than 20 points. That's a really big headwind for the Democratic candidate to overcome if the top of the ticket is winning by 20 points. People have to vote for Trump and then move to the other side of the ballot and vote for somebody else. That's uh, that historically has not happened. So, you know, number one is if Trump wins the presidency, the Republicans are going to keep the Senate. If the race is close, one or two points, like 2016 in either direction, it's possible that the Republicans are going to keep the Senate. If Biden wins by four, five, six points, uh, it's very likely the Democrats are going to control the Senate. And I would say that the most consensus view in the market right now is a Democratic sweep. And that's the data justifies that. But as investors, we keep saying, okay, what could change from that view? And what are those market implications going to be? And to your earlier question about Senator Warren, if you start to see Trump making a comeback or you start to see Trump making a comeback but not going to win, yet the Republicans keep the Senate, then you'll start to see a rally in financials. You'll probably see a rally in uh, healthcare names. You'll probably see uh, a, a little bit of a sell-off in tech. Uh, those are just been the kind of trends that we've been seeing. And, and you say, well, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, you know, the market really doesn't want Joe Biden's tax increases. There's certain industries that will be impacted by those tax increases. They really want Joe Biden's international relations policy, which will be less economic trade protectionism and more diplomatic and geopolitical pressure on China. And if you do that, um, you'll probably see a weaker dollar. And from that weaker dollar, you actually start to see uh, 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 a benefit to U.S. companies that have large foreign revenue exposure in the technology side. So I think those have been the big trends of this election so far, which is that the uh, the dollar has been the most linked to Trump's reelection, and then the resulting uh, uh, investment implications uh, of which companies are impacted by. Mm. Well, certainly we'll watch the dollar very carefully. I think I actually do agree with you very much that uh, the dollar is actually the swing factor at the moment in terms of and, yes. it, and it kind of was in 2016 as well but uh, but obviously the the sectorial implications of a trump victory were were, were quite different um, um or, or, or took precedence yeah. should i say yeah I, I, listen i agree with you i mean we just went through a two-year trade war so companies that were impacted by that um you know uh, saw a stronger dollar as that happened industrials, materials. So as the dollar's weakened, these these stocks are now coming out of a two-year sort of bear market. And uh, and it's changed the uh, sectorial implications today relative to 2020, just because there's market conditions that overlay any of these political factors. So let's draw our attention a little bit to Trump now. So, you know, what are the things that he needs to do to, to get reelected? One of the thoughts that uh, came from my Clulo runs our uh, kind of healthcare strategies. Uh, you know, he 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 said, you know, will Trump, you know, 
put a kind of fast track of vaccines, for example, you know, to make sure that, you know, coming into the election, he can sort of say, look, you know, the vaccine there is available, come to convention and take it, <laughs> take a vaccine <laughs> as, you, as you walk in. You know, what sort of, um, um, you know, what are your thoughts around that? So Trump is a dynamic player. Uh, and he is just not going to sit by and let Joe Biden beat him by 10 points. Like, it's just not going to happen. And so he's going to start moving levers. And, and uh, something that you're not going to read about in the newspaper or something that's on the mind of investors, but Trump changed his campaign manager four weeks ago. And I think it was a very important change because uh, the new campaign manager is so skilled at getting people elected. He got Chris Christie elected with a landslide in New Jersey when Chris Christie ran for re-election. And he worked for Trump in Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, which is where Trump won the election and, um, and not a place where Republicans usually win. So this is a guy who knows how to win. He's very metric-focused. Uh, and uh, I already see a huge change in the Trump strategy and tactics since he's taken over. Of course, Trump will ultimately be the person responsible. Trump usually makes his own mistakes, but I've seen a dramatic improvement in the mechanics of the election, and I think that will matter on election day. Trump needs to get COVID under control, and we know that you can't control this. And every time that some government thinks they got it under control, it snaps back out, right? So it's a fool's game to say I solved it or I fixed it, but you can manage it. And I think you're gonna see a very big theme from Trump over the next couple of weeks, talking about therapeutic and vaccine improvements. What caught my attention was the CEO of Pfizer two weeks ago on his earnings announcement, coming on CNBC and telling the world that they will have a vaccine approved by mid to late October. So this isn't just some, uh, you know, creative thought being made by your healthcare strategy team. This is clearly being communicated that if there is continued progress in a phase three uh, trials, that some of the safety timeline, which is usually six months, will be waived to make an announcement. That does not mean that people are gonna be getting a vaccine in October. I probably would expect at the earliest uh, late December, early January, before people in the U.S. are getting vaccinated, and that will go to the frontline workers and the most at-risk population. So it will be a matter of time uh, in the best-case scenario before people are starting to get vaccinated. But the confidence boost of a vaccine announcement, particularly if it has a good percentage of its effectiveness, which there seems to be confidence amongst the vaccine makers that they'll have, really could translate the psyche of the American consumer. Maybe less so on the voter, but at least the consumer. Because if I know that I'm going to get vaccinated in May of 2021, I'm just making up a random date, I may be more likely to book that Disney World vacation in July or September of 2021. And uh, it really would echo Trump's argument that we had a really strong U.S. economy in February before the virus hit here. And now, um, you know, I'm the, I'm the one, he'll say I'm the one who needs to be trusted with the economy. 
his ratings on the economy are actually pretty good considering the fact that 20 million people lost their jobs. And so if you get something like that, where people start to think that the coronavirus is in the rearview mirror, I think it will help Trump. Uh, you're going to see some other things going on as well, uh, where Trump is calling for a capital gains tax cut, payroll deferral. He's trying to set up a debate on taxes. He's for lower taxes, Biden's for higher taxes. He's doing that because his numbers are pretty bad in the suburbs. And uh, and he wants to make suburban voters believe that Joe Biden's going to raise their taxes. He was very effective at doing that in 2016 with Hillary Clinton. And then there's the micro-targeting strategy. Earlier in this conversation, we were discussing about how maps allowed us to find voters more efficiently. Uh, we're on a whole different scale today than there is uh, than there was 25 years ago, 20, 25 years ago. And um, what I see happening is this micro strategy building. Trump is identifying all the Uber and Lyft drivers. If you watch what's going on in California, there's new regulations out that basically are going to end Uber and Lyft until there's a November ballot by unionizing those workers. Trump is going to those workers and saying, this is going national if, uh, if, uh, uh, if the Democrats win. He is talking to Barstool Sports, which is a famous website here in the U.S., uh, and he's talking about uh, DraftKings, and he's talking about to the Robinhood traders about capital gains tax increases. He's talking to the vapors. It's 150,000 people who vape in the state of Michigan. Trump won the state of Michigan by 44,000 votes. And so there's going to be this underlying campaign that's happening that you and I are not going to see, but they're really trying to outreach to these very niche segments and build a coalition. And that's what he's going to need to do to win. And what binds that is that everybody that is part of that coalition are somehow affected by COVID-19, are likely quarantined or severely restricted. And so getting that vaccine improves everybody's lives and allows them to develop that message of micro-targeting to them down the road. That's what I think the strategy is right now. And um, and what, I guess all of this is just evolving as the new campaign campaign manager starts to you know, get the machine working to, right. uh, to, to, to get these targets out. Um, yeah. uh, obviously the other big debate is around, uh, postal voting. Um, and, yeah. uh, from what I've read around, it's actually not that straightforward and different states have different requirements for postal voting. Um, um, and obviously Trump has already started to, I, I personally think that when he talked about it the other day about delaying the election, I think it was more of the fact that the economic data was GDP data was very bad that morning. And so he kind yeah. of, you know, diverted the attention, but, yes. um, um, what's your, um, uh, what's your take on postal voting and, and, and is this something we should take seriously or, or, uh, or not? Yeah, I, I think your point's a good one. I think it's very unlikely that we're going to delay the vote here, uh, particularly after Hong Kong did this, did that as well. And I, I agree with you that it was a deflection uh, based on the GDP numbers. Uh, I am very worried about the election process, and I'm more worried about the election process and the outcome. We could take any election outcome you give us, Biden wins, Democrats sweep, Republicans sweep, and we can come up with an investment plan for our clients uh, that will generate alpha. What I can't figure out, though, is 
what the volatility level will be around in a close election where you have 62% of all ballots cast as mail-in voting. This is a new thing. When I was in politics, we tried to get people into the machines and preserve the integrity of the election. Now we're trying to get access, particularly in a COVID environment. So we're going to have to do more mail-in balloting. And it's an untested idea uh, in most states. And um, there's going to be a lot of issues. So let me just quickly give you those risk issues. Number one, what I call the least risk is that we have what's called election night. We know who wins. We come out the next day and we're talking about what the results mean. It's probably going to be election week. So maybe a couple days before you know the winner. That's the best case scenario in a close election where there's counting in some states with different rules that they don't start counting until after all the votes come in. That's the best case scenario. It gets significantly worse from there. You had mentioned that Trump has been kind of talking about uh, downplaying the integrity of the election because of mail-in voting. And I would argue it's happening on the other side too. The Democrats are talking about the U.S. Postal Service uh, deliberately slowing down the election, slowing down the mail-in ballots, and that's important. Both sides are literally setting the stage to have a conversation about potential fraud if the election doesn't go the way that they want it to go. And the implication of that is that if you don't know the result of a winner in a certain state for several days, I call it the pinata theory, where the pinata is just hanging out there and it can be whacked. Legal lawsuits. And as that time builds, you start to see problems with the ballots. Because there's always going to be problems with the ballot. Let me give you this example. Wisconsin, a key state, had 23,000 absentee ballots thrown out. 24,000 absentee ballots in the primary election earlier this year. Lower voter turnout than the presidential election. Trump won the state by almost an equivalent amount. So you're literally going to see in some of these states that the absentee ballots or mail-in ballots that are not filled out correctly could exceed the number of votes that a presidential candidate has won by. You know that whoever's on the losing side of that is gonna make an issue. Yeah. You throw out those voters, votes, even though it was incorrectly put uh, filled out, those are gonna be huge issues. And the longer you don't know the result, the harder those issues are gonna be able to solve. And so you can have a Bush versus Gore scenario, which was one state, was a limited problem. You may have that going on in four or five states. And so, okay, well, you know, we'll still work it out. We'll figure it out. But then it leads into significantly larger issues. In 2000, with Bush versus Gore, the U.S. economy was slowing. And we didn't know who's going to be president for six weeks. And the U.S. economy went into recession literally two weeks after the Supreme Court uh, ruled on that election, the Federal Reserve did a 50 basis point rate cut, emergency intermediate 50 basis point rate cut, because you sapped the confidence out of the system. And I don't mean to sound so bearish, and the upside here is that the target states have been doing this for a little bit longer and have been able to do it pretty cleanly. So we have a little bit more confidence where the votes matter the most 
But I am I have never been worried about the process of American democracy until this year. And there is some risk there. And I think investors need to acknowledge that risk if the race tightens up. If the race doesn't tighten up from here, it's not going to be a big issue. We'll be able to adjust our portfolios accordingly. But if you see Trump starting to close the gap, which we think he will, um, then I would anticipate more volatility around that election result. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly sure that's the case. We've already started to see you know, things like VIX, uh, uh, yeah. VIX contracts for uh, you know, October, November already very yeah. elevated. So uh, people are trying to... Uh, make sure they're they're uh, positioned uh, ahead of that, but uh, it, it is you know an exceptionally interesting um, uh, election. Um, one of the big questions that we get um, um, within the FG and, and ourselves is this kind of polarization issue um, that you know has been going on. Uh, I, I guess particularly sort of aggressively over the last four or five years. But to be honest, it's been there for um, possibly the last, you know, 12 years or 14 years, I guess, ever since Obama came to power. Um, What's, um, you know, what needs to happen to bring, you know, uh, America together? Because, you know, I think you and I discussed the huge stimulus package that came along, um, Mm -hmm. which was bipartisan, which is something we haven't seen for a very long time. Um, Yeah. you know, why has it become so polarized and what needs to happen to to reduce that polarity? It's a great question. And, you know, the way I would just kind of think about the U.S. in a framework, and I would think about this globally, is that, uh, as well, is that um, since the financial crisis, the U.S. economy has grown by about 2% per year pre-COVID. And that is the slowest 10-year growth rate ever on record in the United States. In fact, uh, it's very rare for the U.S. to not grow at 3% for one or two years, let alone 12. And I think that economic volatility has translated into significant political volatility in the U.S. Why do I say that? If the U.S. economy had been growing at 3% per year, the U.S. economy today would be uh, $4 trillion larger, maybe $3.5 trillion larger than otherwise would be the case. And that's maybe $40,000 per U.S. household. And Americans know that their standard of living is just not rising the way it used to. If you are a young person who just came out of college or came out of college in 2006, You've never had 3% growth. So the system of capitalism uh, that the U.S. has professed for so long isn't such a great proposition for some of these younger kids. They've never seen the true benefits of it. And, um, it, you know, it's a stretch for me to say that this translates into political volatility without giving you the data behind it. But we've had seven federal elections since the financial crisis, and we've removed the party in power in six of those seven elections. And we've tried all different combinations and none of the political parties or combinations of them have been able to get that growth rate back. And maybe it will never go back, but voters are blaming them for that. I think that's what led to the rise of Trump. He was something different. And if it doesn't correct, it will lead to the rise of Bernie Sanders. The Democrats are really just one election cycle behind the Republicans. 
Republicans also played with their populist right in 2012 and ultimately put Mitt Romney on the top of the ticket. And when Mitt Romney couldn't beat Obama, Republicans moved to Trump. And so if Biden loses to Trump, I would expect the progressives to really get the power in the Democratic Party. And that's a trend that I would keep an eye on. And the only way to really solve that, number one, is you got to get a faster growth rate of the U.S. economy where income grows for everybody. At 2%, it's just not enough for everybody. Number two is that, um, and this this may not be a, a positive data point, but the single greatest unifying factor to the U.S. population will be China. If you think about the U.S. before the Berlin Wall went down, U.S. Republican and Democrats played very tough politics. At the end of the day, there was a shared uh, value system of democracy and capitalism. And it was a West first East fight. It worked out well. World unified when the Berlin Wall went down. It wasn't easy. We've sort of transitioned to a better period of globalization. What I would argue is that there is bipartisan, overwhelming skepticism of China amongst the U.S. population. And um, if you looked at one data point and said, what could unify the U.S. voter 10, maybe five or 10 years from now, it will be this new emerging Cold War with China. And that's why I say it may not be a good data point because none of us want a Cold War. But it's hard to argue that we're not in a Cold War right now. At the very least, we're in a very accelerated stage of decoupling. I think Biden will slow that decoupling relative to Trump, but will still be decoupling. And that's important because you're starting to see a real fight develop over what's the better system. And that's something that we haven't seen since 1989, but it actually could wind up unifying the U.S. voter. It's uh, not, not just U.S., I guess it's globally as well. I think one of the one of the um, thoughts that, uh, that we've had is... Um, is around exactly around the the election uh, sorry around Trump and China you know how kind of your my view was that you know in some respect Trump tried to do it alone against China and um and I think that strategy generally hasn't hasn't worked uh, I think because you know the US you know trying to do a trade deal or trying to do you know try to sort of Put some of that Cold War aspects, be it you know a political war um, or a uh, economic war, if you like, um, um, you know, together. I think one of the things that you know Biden potentially, and, and this is my view, is that Biden could be more successful in in tackling uh, China by bringing the traditional allies together. With with the U.S. rather than what Trump has done is alienate in some respects the the traditional allies. So you know, uh, a Biden with Germany, with France, with Australia, with Japan, with Vietnam, with with Korea, yep. Um, yep. and with Taiwan, yeah. all working yeah. together actually were probably going to be more successful uh, than 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 Trump was doing it alone. So uh, it's a great point, and uh, I generally. 
would agree with that. But um, I think there's some benefit to what Trump did. Uh, and um, the idea here is that um, China has been able to use the rules of the World Trade Organization and the uh, slow nature of global talks to be able to continue to manipulate and um, uh, cheat in the U.S.'s mind on intellectual property in other areas. Uh, what Trump did was, number one, is he brought attention to China in a way that nobody else would have focused on this. His views were outlier views four years ago. And I think there's now a general global recognition that what China's doing is needs to stop. Yeah. And I, 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 I think that's the most important contribution that Trump will make if his term ends, is that he brought a global awareness to this. That's number one. Number two is that Trump view was the bully's got to be punched in the mouth. That's his Queens, New York upbringing. <laughs> and, um, and that if he tried to uh, move in a more global nature, it would have been too slow and it would be two or three presidents before the issue gets resolved. And I'll give you that one example is that the EU and the U S are fighting over Boeing and Airbus at, uh, today over things that happened 15 years ago still. And uh, and so I don't think that the Trump policy worked because it allowed China to say, well, we're going to do this stuff and we're going to move alone. We're going to go into Hong Kong. We're going to go on the border of India um, and we're, we're just going to go do our own game. And, and so he probably accelerated that process up. But I actually think if Biden's able to come in and do the more global nature, like you say, which I think. I agree with you, will be more successful. Um, it allowed the Chinese to know that there's an alternative on the other side. And and contrary to what anybody will tell you, economically, uh, China was hurt more by this than the U.S. And um, and that, that means that Germany is going to have a very outsized role to play here in those negotiations because um, yeah. Germany is going to be able to figure out whether they want to play both sides or or take a side, and I think that's going to be a really interesting debate. Mm. The most under-discussed aspect of the Trump administration, I think, is the tension between the U.S. and the EU. Now, in the EU, it may be more clear, but in the U.S., it's not really discussed. And those tensions are uh, as as bad as I've ever seen them between the U.S. and the EU. And... Um, uh, Biden will move to restore that almost immediately. Uh, you know, we often joke, and it's sort of a half a joke, but as soon as Biden gets back from his inauguration parade on January 20th, if he wins, I think he'll rejoin the Paris Climate Change Agreement as his first move. And then you'll see the discussion starting about all the other issues that uh, have been quite dicey between Trump and the EU. So there's two bites at the apple there. One, the ally, you get better relationship with the allies, do, and then you get more pressure on China to make reforms. But I wouldn't say that Trump's policy has been a complete failure. There, there have been some benefits to it. Mm. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think he really sort of uh, brought it to attention to the world. And, uh, you know, uh, the very fact that we've started to see sort of pullbacks from you know, Huawei in the UK, uh, yeah. Australia and other places, I think really brought that, uh, really brought that home. 
Um, yep. And uh, so, yeah, no, I, I actually do uh, very much agree with with the success that that's had. Uh, but I, you know, I guess it probably needs to pivot to something different to to kind of really drive it home. I, certainly some of the um, uh, policymakers I've spoken to in Europe and particularly Germany, they're not very happy with China at all. Um, there is, yeah. they are not happy with, you know, some, some key strategic uh, businesses, for example, you know, Kuka, which was, you know, a well-known you know, uh, German robotics company fell into Chinese hands. And yeah. I think they were not very happy uh, with A, that happening, but uh, probably intensely regret it, you know, subsequently. Um, so uh, so I think, um, you know, it's definitely coming on to the global stage. I think the Japanese have always understood it. So yeah. they've always had that much, much more cautious relationship uh, and ensuring things like IP are closely protected, you know, locally, before they, um, you know, subcontract and do business with with partners uh, in, in China, but uh, it's a very very interesting debate and uh, you know something I, I think we we certainly look forward to, um, you know, post the election. I, th- I think it, things will s- s- move very quickly. Whoever wins, uh, you know, subsequently. Yeah, I, listen, I would also keep an eye on it um, in the next couple of weeks because uh, the U.S. and China are going to meet to discuss the status of the phase one trade agreement. I think China's made some progress on liberalizing their financial markets, uh, but they're clearly nowhere near where they need to be on some of their other commitments. And you see Trump rattling it up. He's he's going after WeChat and US companies use WeChat very extensively. Uh, You have a Huawei decision coming up uh, in September about whether they can have access to US hardware uh, and, uh, and, and other, uh, other types of, uh, us products. Uh, and, uh, Trump may want to use China as leverage in the campaign to come back. So, uh, I think in the short run, it's going to be a big issue. Uh, and then Biden's, you know, if Biden wins, Biden's going to have to, uh, figure out how to, um, maintain what is a shift in us policy and regardless of who gets elected, uh, but do it in a more, diplomatic geopolitical manner yeah no i think that's uh, that's absolutely right so dan um we're coming towards the end of it's been an absolutely fascinating uh, discussion I, I just had one kind of side question it was yeah. really, really related and i was quite interested in uh, in think you know sort of side campaigns like the lincoln project that are obviously yeah. republican backed but clearly you know uh, making sure that uh, they 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 should make sure that Trump doesn't get elected. What are your thoughts on, on, on those kind of little spoiler campaigns that are sitting on the side? They seem to be quite effective in, in either raising money or, or, uh, or certainly a social media presence. So uh, I, I think any time you have people purporting to be of one party going after the standard bearer of the party, um, it's taken seriously and taken as, oh, maybe I need to, to think about this. If there was true opposition to Donald Trump in the Republican Party, there would have been a primary opponent against Donald Trump. And in fact, Donald Trump is getting 91% of the Republican vote right now. I think the value of what the Lincoln Project are doing is trying to say to independent voters, maybe the two or three million that haven't made up their mind yet, that it's not safe to go that direction. Trust us, we're Republicans. The people behind that organization, I know some of them, 
Uh, I've worked on campaigns with some of them. Uh, and I got to tell you that um, what I think is going on there is that, um, you know, the political consultant life is, uh, you know, if, if, if you, if the other party wins, you lose all that business. Mm. And so in politics, there's always people, you know, going from trying to figure out how to win so that they get more business. And what happened with Trump was he was such an outlier in the Republican Party that the entire Republican establishment was out. That's very rare for a primary. Mm. If Bernie Sanders had won the primary, it would have been the same thing almost for the Democrats. And what you got are a bunch of Republican consultants running a project with very effective ads. These are people who've gotten presidents elected before. And they are now getting paid in this election cycle, even though their party's out of power, or their, their, the party, the person who won isn't giving them business, and uh, they're helping the Democrats. And so just looking at the donor list, I believe it's Democratic money funding former Republican consultants to run ads to scare independents away from Donald Trump. It will have a big effect amongst the establishment crowd in New York and Washington and LA, but I'm not really sure it's going to impact the voter in Wisconsin and Michigan the way other things will like the COVID response. Mm. But there's a message there when you watched our ads, Mm. their ads are very effective in framing the economic collapse related to a bad COVID response. And uh, I think it's going to be an attack that Biden and Harris are going to make on the president, and it's going to stick. And that's why the president really needs COVID to remain under control as flu season comes back in, uh, because the economy can't move forward without it. Mm. The key demographic to watch in this election are women with school-aged children. Because the anxiety level on you know on August of 2020 is higher for those women than probably at any other time that I've seen in my uh, 25 years in politics, and it's because they don't know if their children should go to school or not. They know they need to go to school for professional development. In some cases. They need to go to school so the parents can go back to work. And yet we as parents care more about our children's health than anything else and don't want to have that risk. And that's a decision that those voters are going to have to make. And I think that that is what is really going to drive whether Trump is going to win the election or not, is if that anxiety level comes down or not amongst that demographic. Well, well, we'll certainly watch out for that very, very carefully. Um, one thing that we 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 missed um, uh, earlier on yep. was uh, was around lobbying because I, I I do want to yeah. get this because you know, this is one of the areas that you excel in, I would say, and strategies excel in. Um, um, yep. uh, obviously, you know, for a lot of um, people who don't understand what lobbying is, um, and they just think it's sort of you know political influence. I guess it is in in some shape or form. But how does lobbying translate? into investment strategy and and um and and some of the great work that you've done there so uh you know i when i think about 
Uh, how do you be different than your competitors? How do you add value for your clients? How do you concentrate on a big idea uh, that will make an impact that, uh, that, that you can contribute? Uh, I think our work into the lobbying is really kind of defining in those areas. And, and, and what do I mean by that? Well, as I mentioned before, I used to lobby. So I worked on campaigns. I worked in government. I worked as a lobbyist, um, and all of those three things are what is required to be able to analyze public policy and turn them into an investment implication. Because what I do when I handicap whether a bill can pass in the law, I say to myself, okay, I'm the lobbyist. What am I doing? How am I getting this bill passed? What are my roadblocks going to be? I'm literally taking the same approach that I did as a lobbyist. When I came into this job, I was really an expert on tax, retirement, a um, little bit of healthcare, a little bit of energy. And then all of a sudden I'm getting into like data privacy and tech issues and I had to get caught up to speed. And I remembered that as a lobbyist, I would have to fill out a lobbying disclosure report, which U.S. has some of the greatest disclosures of lobbying information uh, anywhere in the world. And so what I started doing was going into Google and Facebook and uh, ExxonMobil's lobbying report to see what they were working on. That alone started allowing us to understand what was important on a company in a sector-wide basis that we were able to communicate with our clients. Now, anybody could do that. That's, that's easy. Where the real innovation came from is so uh, is that why would Exxon be spending money? Why would Google be spending money? Well, they treat their lobbying expense like a research and development expense. They're making an investment with some sort of hope of a financial market or, or an earnings return, not financial market, but an earnings return from that investment. They wouldn't be spending money on something if they didn't think they were going to make money on it. And that's when we started to think about what is the earnings impact going to be the companies from lobbying? And if you think about the, the, the book uh, that was written called Moneyball about how the Major League Baseball was just misspending their money on high-value players and missing the value opportunity of you know, figuring out a simple metric of getting on base is the key to winning, we did the sort of same thing with policy because all of a sudden – the financial crisis comes, you have this explosion of policy research. Washington and global policymakers are far more important for investors than at any time. And people are just sending you research after research after research. And we said, how do you systemically turn this into a uh, uh, some sort of investment way of doing it? And, uh, you know, we've tried like 50 different variables and failed, and almost all of them. But what we started to realize was that lobbying was statistically significant on earnings when we made several proprietary adjustments to that data. And in some ways, just like anything else, you know, luck is, is very important and plays a very big role in life, is that we never really thought it was going to be a massive alpha driver uh, by doing what we were doing. And we, we, had, a, we had a really good run. Uh, and over the last 10 years, uh, companies that exhibit 
uh, or meet our lobbying test, have outperformed the S&P 500 by 300 bips, 300 basis points per year. We just went through a two-year period of underperformance in 2018 and 2019. Uh, and, uh, you know, if, if uh, uh, what I would argue is that the trade fight that Trump was having was the very first time in 20 years of this data that we actually saw where lobbying really didn't have an impact. And what I, what I would say is that if policymakers are going to do something and it's going to materially hurt the economy, it leads to an increase in lobbying. And that lobbying then minimizes the effect of that. Uh, companies are also lobbying for proactive stuff like a new tax benefit or new spending, or they're trying to level down their competition. And what we're trying to do is just figure out um, where that, where those players are and use a data-driven approach to calculate the earnings impact and figure out where there's a mispricing in the market. Uh, this year we're outperforming again, um, but you know, 2018 and 2019 were a little bit humbling on that respect. We now apply lobbying, not just in a general sense, we apply it uh, on specific policy issues. And, uh, for example, it really worked well for us in the China trade uh, basket that we have, which are companies that have exposure in China, U.S. companies, and are lobbying to reduce those tariffs. And so as we did the U.S.-China trade deal on October 10th and again on December uh, when they ratified it, um, we really got some good performance from that. So we think lobbying is a key mispriced driver. And the reason is that if you went for CFA, you learn balance sheet, you learn interest rates, you learn earnings. And what we've identified is that Washington is a more, uh, is a, on the margin, a bigger driver of earnings than it was in the past. And that models that fail to incorporate that in are going to be missing where some of those opportunities lie. And we try and pounce on that. Well, we'll certainly uh, be keeping a very close close eye on that, uh, you know, going forward. So, Dan, uh, last question, and uh, again, thank you very much for just an amazing uh, discussion and uh, something uh, that uh, you know, no doubt, I'll probably be replaying back a couple of times myself, making sure that uh, that, I, that I got every implication because there's a lot there. Uh, so the question I ask everybody else uh, that comes on is, what advice would you give your young self as to career, life, and outlook? Uh, well, first, uh, you know, you asked about networking before. And, you know, one of the great lessons that I've learned over time is to treat new people like old friends. And uh, in Washington, which is a very cutthroat type of place, everybody's looking for who can help the other person out. Uh, and it's a very it's a very nasty game. And uh, one of the lessons that I've learned is that if you are bringing people in and you give them the benefit of the doubt right at the beginning, you're going to learn to have a lot more positive people in your life and a lot more people that you can work and do business with. And, and don't get me wrong. There are going to be times where these people disappoint you, but it allows your network to grow. I think I've benefited tremendously from reading, from networking, trying to help other people out, obviously traveling, getting to sit in a room with you. I learned so much when I sit in a room with you. So I want to do more of that. 
travel, meet with clients. Uh, and then really what has happened over time is uh, being able to help younger people who have that same level of energy that I did when I was a younger person and really kind of nurture uh, the next generation to come in and give them the benefits that other people were able to give me. Those are the things that I think are important and not what I was thinking about at 25, but those are the kind of things that I've learned uh, over, over the last 20, 25 years uh, of working in this business that have been the most beneficial to me. Mm, no, that's well said. I think it's certainly something that uh, we all should aspire to, uh, you know, helping the incumbents uh, that, that come in and giving them benefits out of wisdom because uh, ultimately we do... Uh, we benefit indirectly and uh, and uh, and you know that you you bring a legacy that people remember you for which is which is quite important i guess uh, certainly as you get as you get older <laughs> that happens <laughs> well dan Wilson, thank you very much and uh, thank you for being a, a great friend of efgs um we uh, we obviously value uh, strategists and and uh, and yourself and your team um hugely and uh, you know, uh, and obviously love to have you back here in the office in London again uh, relatively soon, hopefully. I can't wait for that day. Thank you. Yeah, it thank is you. such an honor to work with such a great organization like EFG every day. And we very much appreciate the opportunity and we look forward to continuing this conversation. Thank you for having me. Great. Thanks, Dan. Thank you very much. An absolutely fascinating discussion uh, with Dan Clifton from Strategic Partners. Um, we will stop there um, thank you very much for listening and uh, please do send us an email uh, on beyond at fcam.com so beyond at fcam.com if you have any questions or any other th- topics you wish us to tackle over the coming weeks thank you and speak to you soon <laughs>